A word of caution. This episode features descriptions of the abuse and murder of children. It was a difficult topic for me to work on, so please take care when listening. A young boy dies at the home of his adoptive parents in what is later found to be the result of swaddling. The boy was only four years old, and his parents had been attempting a controversial parenting therapy before his death. A 10-year-old girl from North Carolina is taken out of state by her adoptive mother in another case of attachment therapy and also dies at the treatment center. Two boys with special needs die in what appears to be tragic accidents, and one case helps investigators change the protocol for future searches. And finally, a couple from South Carolina have been arrested in the death of their son, who went missing for 48 hours in 1989 before being found on their property. They never showed signs of wanting to find his killer, and a video of the father finding his son was archived by a local news channel. Will it be used in the murder trial as evidence? There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 82, Deaths of Children with Special Needs. On January 5th, 2023, the Surrey County EMS was dispatched to the home of Jody and Joseph Wilson in Mount Airy, North Carolina. A call had come in reporting a child had a seizure in the home. When the first responders arrived, they found four-year-old Skylar Wilson unresponsive and not breathing on his own. Four days later, the boy passed away at Brenner Children's Hospital in Winston-Salem. According to Fox 8 News, his cause of death was listed as a hypoxic brain injury caused by restriction that prevented oxygen to the brain. His doctor at the hospital told police that these brain injuries were consistent with too much restriction during the swaddling technique. Most of us are familiar with the term swaddling in regards to using it with infants. It involves wrapping a baby snugly in a blanket, but rolling over while being swaddled has been linked to an increased likelihood of SIDS deaths, so it is not encouraged for an infant that is old enough to roll over on its own. When police began investigating Schuyler's death, they issued a court order requesting records from the Surrey County Department of Social Services for Schuyler and his brother. Both boys had been placed with the couple in September of 2021, and the Wilsons had fostered three children prior to the boys. Investigative reporting by the Mount Airy News discovered that Schuyler's former foster mother had grown concerned about the safety of the boys and reached out to the Surrey County DSS on December 7, 2022. She told detectives that Jody Wilson, then age 38, had discussed using the swaddling technique known as pouching, food restriction, gating Schuyler in his room for extended periods of alone time, and exorcisms of both the children. Court records did not indicate a follow-up visit from social services 
or an investigation that took place as a result of this former foster mother's concerns. Police obtained a search warrant of the Wilson's home that included computers, multiple cameras, duct tape wrappings, and Schuyler's medical records, among other items. They found wrist and ankle braces as well. Joseph later claimed the straps were used to keep Schuyler in place during the swaddling sessions. Evidence from both Jody and Joseph's cell phones showed messages she sent through Facebook that read, See video, about to tie him up and swaddle him again. Joseph Wilson, who was 41 at the time, worked as a chiropractor at a business in Mount Airy called Affordable Wellness. His clients knew him as Dr. Joe. It appears the business has now permanently closed. Employees at Affordable Wellness told police that Joseph would look at video footage from his home from his cell phone. They had also witnessed him using office computers to search for alternative parenting techniques, and he had been recording Zoom sessions with a woman named Nancy Thomas, who bills herself as an expert in attachment therapy and holding therapy. Nancy Thomas is not a licensed medical doctor, psychiatrist, or therapist. Her methods were shared in a 1990 HBO documentary titled Child of Rage. She shared her experience with her adoptive daughter, Beth Thomas, who she says had reactive attachment disorder. According to the Mayo Clinic, reactive attachment disorder is defined as a rare but serious condition in which an infant or young child doesn't establish healthy attachments with parents or caregivers. Reactive attachment disorder may develop if the child's basic needs for comfort, affection, and nurturing aren't met and loving, caring, stable attachments are not established. An article that ran in the Stokes News explained more about the reparenting therapy it appears the Wilsons were attempting on Schuyler. Reparenting suggests that children be treated like a baby or toddler in an attempt to create a new bond between the child and caregiver to replace those that were not formed with their birth parent or caregiver. The article also states, the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children held a task force on attachment theory and in 2006 wrote, assessment for attachment problems requires considerable diagnostic knowledge and skill to accurately recognize attachment problems and to rule out competing diagnoses. When Fox 8 News reached out to Nancy Thomas about the death of Skylar Wilson, she said the following, I am shocked and saddened to hear the sad news of this little one passing away. Since I have no knowledge of the incident, I am unable to give a comment. I am willing to assist law enforcement if they have any questions. Jody and Joe Wilson were arrested and charged with the murder of Skylar Wilson. I was unable to find a scheduled trial date in this case. The defendants have been through several lawyers at this point, resulting in numerous delays. I want to talk about Candace Newmaker next. Skylar Wilson died as a result of injuries sustained during swaddling, a therapy his parents were allegedly using on the advice of Nancy Thomas. Another child from North Carolina, 10-year-old Candace Newmaker, died in 2000 during a rebirthing session, which is another controversial treatment for reactive attachment disorder. Candace was the daughter of Angela Elmore, a young mother with little education and a troubled relationship with her husband. 
The North Carolina Department of Social Services found Angela negligent in caring for Candace and her two other children. When they decided to remove the children from Angela's home, she went into hiding. The department officials eventually found her and the children were placed into foster care. The department then terminated Angela's parental rights. When Candace was six years old, Jean Newmaker, a pediatric nurse from an affluent family in Durham, North Carolina, adopted her. According to what Jean later reported to authorities, Candace had difficulty acclimating into her new home. She was diagnosed as having attention deficit disorder and was prescribed Ritalin and later Dexedrine. Jean continued to take Candace to see doctors and she was also diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and oppositional defiant disorder. She was then prescribed Effexor and Risperdal, along with the Dexedrine. As you can tell, these are powerful medications for a young girl to be taking. Her mother reported she had trouble sleeping and was fearful that monsters were coming to get her in her dreams. In the spring of 1999, Jean said she woke up in the middle of the night after smelling smoke. She found Candace in the guest bedroom, sitting on the bed, with spent matches scattered all around her. She had thrown lit matches onto the floor, setting patches of the carpet on fire. Jean said she was desperate after years of reading parenting books and consulting therapists and various doctors when she came across Watkins and Associates in Evergreen, Colorado. Jean traveled out of state with Candace to meet with Connell Watkins, a psychotherapist, and her assistant, Julie Ponder, a licensed marriage and family therapist. Three days before Candace's therapy was set to end, on April 18, 2000, the two women planned a rebirthing procedure. Julie Ponder told Candace to lie down in a fetal position on a blue flannel sheet. During a 70-minute session that was recorded on video, Candace was wrapped from head to toe and surrounded by pillows. Candace cried out that she was having a hard time breathing, even kicking a 31-inch tear in the sheet with her feet, but Connell Watkins and Julie Ponder, along with two other adults, continued to push the girl in what they called an attempt to simulate uterine contractions. All in all, the 75-pound girl was crushed with the combined weight of 673 pounds. Her adoptive mother, Jean, sat just a few feet away asking, Baby, do you want to be reborn? Fifty minutes into the session, Candace grew quiet. The therapist then taunted her with the words, Quitter, 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 waiting 20 more minutes before unwrapping her from the sheet. She was pronounced dead the next morning from cerebral edema. According to an article on the National Institutes for Health website, traditional rebirthing therapy is a treatment that was developed in the 1970s by Leonard Orr, a psychotherapist. It is predominantly a breathing technique and normally doesn't last more than 15 minutes. During the trial of Connell Watkins and Julie Ponder, jurors were subjected to more than 10 hours of videotapes that showed just how horrifying the therapy sessions leading up to Candace's death were. The AT program at Watkins & Associates cost around $7,000 and included Candace living with therapeutic foster parents, in this case, Britta St. Clair and Jack McDaniel, 
the adults who were also present at the time of her death. I won't get into all the details because they are very upsetting, but the sessions involved Candace being shaken violently multiple times while also being screamed at by the therapists. They also cut off all her hair. In 2001, after a three-week trial, both Connell Watkins and Julie Ponder were sentenced to 16 years in prison after being convicted of reckless child abuse resulting in the death of Candace Newmaker. The two assistants, Britta St. Clair and Jack McDaniel, pled guilty to lesser felonies for negligent child abuse and received 10 years probation and a thousand hours of community service. Jean Newmaker pled guilty to criminally negligent child abuse and was given a deferred sentence of four years. At the end of her term, her official record was cleared of the charge. The nursing board here in North Carolina permitted her to keep her registered nursing license. Candace's birth mother, Angie, was not told of her daughter's death. She only found out several months after the fact when reporters uncovered her identity and went to visit her. An interesting fact that I uncovered while researching this episode is that Nancy Thomas, the therapist who was later counseling Skylar Wilson's adoptive parents, was employed at Watkins and Associates during the time Candace was there. She doesn't appear to have worked with Candace directly, but she studied attachment therapy methods at the center. Connell Watkins was released in June 2008 and accepted into a transitional community setting. She was forbidden to be employed in any sort of psychological consulting or counseling profession as part of her release agreement. She also had to wear an ankle bracelet, monitoring her whereabouts, and was limited in the types of contact she could have with minors. I've been unable to find any updated information on whether or not Julie Ponder has been released from prison. Rebirthing therapy has been banned in the state of Colorado as a result of Candace's death. It prohibits all psychotherapies from using active restraint for the safety of patients. Next, I'd like to talk about Maddox Rich. In 2018, we had a missing persons case in our area involving a young child that sparked widespread media attention. While the case did not have a happy ending, it did spark change in the way law enforcement handles missing persons cases of children with special needs. It was September 22, 2018, and six-year-old Maddox Rich who had been diagnosed with autism and was a nonverbal child, was visiting Rankin Lake Park with his father, Ian Rich, and his father's girlfriend. Ian said they were walking through the park when his son took off running behind a jogger. Ian tried to catch up with Maddox, but couldn't figure out which direction he went. He and two other park staffers searched for Maddox before making the decision to call the police. Hundreds of law enforcement officers and search and rescue teams spent countless hours searching for the little boy. The local media quickly kept the public informed of the search for Maddox. A little more than a week later, he was found over a mile away from where he was last seen, partially submerged in Long Creek near Marietta Street and Old Dallas Highway in Gastonia. He was found in an area covered with thick brush, tall grass, and swampy terrain. A local neighbor told WBTV News that there was a trail along the creek that connects the area to Rankin Lake Park. 
the path passes under Highway 321. A local man who lived near the area where Maddox was found said he had seen several search parties searching for the little boy in that area. The Gaston County Police Chief even confirmed two separate kayak teams had been through there. The medical examiner stated that the findings from Maddox's autopsy were not inconsistent with drowning. The report read, in conjunction with investigative information at this time, which gives no indication of other than an accidental drowning, it seems reasonable to conclude that the likely cause of death is drowning. An x-ray conducted during the examination showed no signs of bone injuries and blood samples showed normal results. After Maddox's case, Special Agent James Granosio, who works in the Charlotte field office of the FBI, said he developed a one-page questionnaire for investigators to use when a child with autism goes missing. He devoted time to learning all he could about autism and autistic children, reaching out to local and national organizations for information. Special Agent Granosio also leads one of the FBI's four regional child abduction rapid deployment teams, also known as CARD. CARD teams are comprised of agents, intelligence analysts, operational specialists, and behavioral analysts who deploy on short notice when police departments request FBI assistance in missing cases. The Gastonia Police Department quickly reached out to the Charlotte field office after Maddox was reported missing. This was a case that was truly heartbreaking for the community because so many people devoted time and energy to the search and helping get the word out. Unfortunately, Maddox was a very small child who got lost in an area with a lot of water and woods. We hope that the questionnaire developed for use by investigators after this case will help other children with special needs be found more quickly in future searches. Before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. It's winter time. I don't know about you, but my skin is always in desperate need of moisture during this time of the year and well, all the other months of the year too. But I don't like to experiment with a lot of different products at high price points if they won't work for me. Enter the products from Skin X Erin. I use her pre-cleanse oil, hydrating beauty oil, and perfecting night oil, and I was hooked from the first drop. The pre-cleanse gently removes dirt, impurities, and even waterproof makeup without tugging, all without stripping or drying out your skin. In addition to keeping your skin clear, it also helps your skin feel firmer and reduces the signs of aging. The Hydrating Beauty Oil is a powerful and effective skin hydrator that never leaves your skin feeling greasy. The Signature Squalane Oil is known for its anti-inflammatory and anti-aging properties. It's perfect for treating skin conditions like acne and eczema and reducing the appearance of wrinkles. The Perfecting Night Oil is loaded with vitamins E and A and is rich with antioxidants and omegas that nourish skin, replenish elasticity, and reduce stretch marks. A few drops a day leaves skin smoother, more vibrant, and youthful. Want to try out the products for yourself? Go to shopxerin.com and use the code MISSINGCAROLINAS10 for a 10% discount on your order. True crime is more popular than ever thanks to documentaries, podcasts, and media outlets that produce gripping crime stories. This is great news for writers wanting to explore this market. Crime narratives are not only compelling for consumers, but they can also help find justice for victims, their families, and the community. In fiction, 
using true crime elements and journalistic techniques can help deepen the storyline and add authenticity to characters and plot. Do you enjoy reading and consuming true crime content and would love to find a way to write and publish your own? In a webinar I'll be teaching through WOW Women on Writing next spring, I'll share how to find story ideas, how you can use true crime elements in fiction and nonfiction, where to pitch your true crime work, and more. You also have an opportunity to send an article outline or project pitch to me for feedback. The webinar will take place on March 14, 2024 from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and will be recorded for those who can't attend in person. The cost is $45 and there are a limited number of spots, so register today at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the Classes tab. And now, let's get back to the show. The case of Denari Lindsay again highlights just how important caring for a child with special needs is, along with the attention and detail required. On October 7, 2022, two-year-old Denari died in an accident at the home of family friends in Edenton who were watching him. His mother, Cornea, told news station WBTW she had dropped the boy off with a couple who were like grandparents to him. The little boy, who had autism, hearing aids, and could not see without his glasses, had been at the home for a few hours when his mom got a call that Denari was in a local hospital. A sheriff's deputy met her and said while driving through the neighborhood, he had seen a man standing at the end of his driveway looking concerned. The deputy asked if he needed help, and that's when he found out Denari was missing from the home. While they assisted in the search, investigators found Denari upside down in a bucket of water on the property. They immediately began performing CPR, and Chowan Emergency Medical Services was called. Denari was pronounced dead and the autopsy confirmed he died of asphyxia via drowning. An article that ran in the Daily Advance said that Denari's caregiver had gone to the restroom inside the home and couldn't find him when she returned. The local district attorney declined to file charges against the couple, saying it was a tragic accident and he could find nothing the caregivers did that showed criminal conduct. The family of Denari was frustrated and disappointed by the district attorney's decision, but I'm sure the office felt it would be difficult to prove this case of malice and intent in the death of Denari. This past week, I read an article about a cold case involving a five-year-old boy from Monk's Corner, South Carolina, named Justin Lee Turner. The news caught my attention because it said Justin's father had been the one who found his deceased son in a camper on the family property about 48 hours after the boy went missing. Justin's father and stepmother were arrested and charged with his murder this past week. According to Justin's stepmother, Pamela Turner, he went missing from his home on Friday, March 3, 1989. She said he had gotten on the bus to school that morning, but never returned home. She said she was in the shower when he left to go to a neighbor's house to wait for the bus, and her husband Victor had been at work at a local factory during that time. On Sunday, more than 100 people, including members of local law enforcement, began a ground search near the family home to look for Justin. The beginning of that search was filmed. The video shot by local NBC affiliate WCBD shows Justin's father going into a turquoise and white camper and quickly coming back out, stating, my son's in there. He appeared to be hyperventilating and upset after the discovery. 
After the discovery of the little boy's body, eight employees of the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, SLED, four crime scene technicians and four agents joined deputies to gather evidence in the case. The neighbors of the Turners were fearful and worried and kept a close watch over their own children, scared the killer would strike again. An autopsy showed Justin had been sexually assaulted and strangled with a thin strap, such as a belt or dog leash, between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on March 3rd, the day he was reported missing. Victor and Pamela declined to be interviewed by the press, as did Justin's biological mother and stepfather. Almost immediately, the authorities and family members of the couple were suspicious. A few different people close to Victor and Pamela told investigators they believed Justin's body had been kept somewhere else on the property and moved into the camper before the search on Sunday. Authorities also discovered Pamela had lied about Justin going to the neighbor's house to wait for the bus. He had never even made it to school that day. Victor and Pamela were uncooperative during the investigation. They refused to answer questions at one coroner's inquest into Justin's death and failed to appear at the second one, even after being subpoenaed. They both took polygraph tests, but those were later determined to be inconclusive after they admitted to being on sedatives. Pamela Turner was eventually charged in the murder, but then the complaint was withdrawn when prosecutors feared they didn't have enough evidence for a jury to convict her. Last week, the couple were arrested at their home in Cross Hill, South Carolina, and charged with murder. Pamela Turner, now 63, had changed her name to Megan. Victor Turner is 69. Berkeley County Sheriff Dwayne Lewis held a news conference on January 10th. He said a cold case unit had reopened the case about a year and a half ago, and evolving DNA and forensic evidence technology helped match a ligature from the couple's home to a shirt collar Justin was wearing. Megan Turner had also told witnesses over the years that she had an altercation with the victim before he was last seen. Sheriff Dwayne Lewis said he believes the Turners murdered Justin inside their home, then later moved his body into the camper. The sheriff also said during the press conference that he found it strange that the couple showed little interest in the investigation from the very beginning, including when the cold case unit reopened it just a few years ago. I never got one call from his daddy or his stepmother, he said. What are y'all doing about my son's death? Not one. What does that tell you? Before we go, I'd like to share a few facts about technology-facilitated stalking, as January marks the 24th year of National Stalking Awareness Month. According to SPARC, or Stalking Prevention Awareness and Resource Center, stalking is a prevalent victimization, and the majority of stalkers use or misuse technology to monitor, watch, contact, control, threaten, sabotage, isolate, and frighten victims, as well as to damage victims' credibility or reputation. In fact, 80% of victims report being stalked with technology. 41% of undergraduate students have experienced tech-facilitated stalking. The vast majority of tech-facilitated stalking victims are pursued by people they know, most commonly by a well-known or casual acquaintance. Every U.S. jurisdiction has a statute criminalizing tech-facilitated stalking, with the majority explicitly recognizing online acts and 15% of adults experienced intimate partner tech abuse in the six months prior to a survey. 
It's important to note that tech-facilitated stalking impacts the daily lives of victims and is just as invasive, threatening, and fear-inducing as in-person stalking. Please visit the website stalkingawareness.org for more facts about stalking and resources where you can seek help if you currently are or have been a victim of stalking. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at www.wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.